You're listening to Anti-Racism in the Disciplines, the podcast that explores the complex histories of the liberal arts in order to reimagine their future. I'm your host, Brian Edwards, Dean of the School of Liberal Arts at Tulane University. In this episode, we'll talk about political science, featuring our guest Alvin B. Tillery Jr., professor of political science and director of the Center for the Study of Diversity and Democracy at Northwestern University. Dr. Tillery's research spans the fields of American politics and political theory, with a focus on the U.S. and race. He is also the founder and CEO of the 2040 Strategy Group, a consulting firm that specializes in social impact and DEI solutions for corporate, nonprofit, and governmental entities. Al, thank you for joining us in this conversation. Yeah, my pleasure. So I really want to start at a very basic level and to understand, you know, political science. Political science is right now our most popular major at Tulane, and it's one of the most popular majors in the United States. So a lot of people are studying it, and a lot of people are not studying it or curious about it. How would you even define political science? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because I remember when I was in grad school in the 90s, there was a big concern about the end of political science because people were not taking it as much as they were pursuing uh, some other majors. And I think, you know, really Bush v. Gore was the really first uptick to get people excited about politics and political science again. And then we've had a series of other big things happening in U.S. government and then also globally, particularly in the U.K. and in France, I think that have brought people back to the discipline. And so the discipline, I think, is really an interesting and diverse one. It began in the, in the middle of the 19th century as an offshoot of history, history of administration. So really the study of government function, right? Study of government bureaucracy is really where it begins in, in the last three or four decades of the 19th century. And today, it's a really sort of primarily focused on individuals, voters. Voters emerge as the big dominant force in political science in the middle of the 1960s, right? Um, not surprising because in that period, we begin to see for the first time, America becomes a real democracy, right? And so people become interested in, you know, what are voters thinking? <laughs> and politicians are going to have to be accountable to them in, in new ways because of, you know, things like McGovern Fraser reforms in 1972 that said, okay, parties will now pick their presidential nominees based on what voters say, right? And so that is probably the biggest segment of the discipline, what we call political behavior or public opinion research. But it also encompasses a bunch of other offshoots, comparative government, how do two different countries organize themselves, and what are the best institutions for different countries. There's political theory, which is really a branch of political philosophy that focuses on just theories of government, starting mostly with the Enlightenment and then moving through modern conceptions. And now we're in critical theory and post-structuralist theory, neo-Marxism, and then international relations, the study of the laws of nations, the international order, as we used to call it, maybe breaking down now. So if I walk into a department of political science, you're at Northwestern or here at Tulane, I'm going to encounter a lot of scholars and students who, but especially the scholars who are going to divide themselves, they'll tell me, 
into groups, and you just named them just now. And yet, the department is going to have a sign on top of it that says science. I know that uh, in 1835, Alexis de Tocqueville writes in Democracy in America, to quote him, a new political science is needed for a world itself quite new. I guess that's probably a canonical kind of sentence in the discipline. But this idea of a science being required for a new sort of world. Why science? Like, what does that mean to political scientists? Well, in Tocqueville's case, he was, uh, like most of the elite in that period, you know, deeply influenced by the German romantics who wanted to make a science of everything, <laughs> right? The Hegel and the science of history, right? And, and so why science? I mean, I think in the 19th century, there was a thought that you needed to figure out ways to make typologies and order arrangements around government so they could figure out what the conception of the good was. What is the good life that stems from political order? And so particularly if you think about the Enlightenment project is one of moving people out of what they consider to be conditions of disorder or danger to conditions that promote greater security, not necessarily freedom. That comes much later. And the science part of it in political science now, only really in the last 25 to 40 years have been concerned with kind of a science that leads to greater human flourishing and freedom. And so why science? It's because the enterprise starts with an idea of trying to give elites like Tocqueville or von Treitsky or Locke, who was really engaged in setting up <laughs> slave institutions in America, right? Give them an idea of how to actually practice government and how to practice order that would promote stability. Even the founders of the American Republic, they believe that they're engaged in a kind of scientific tinkering to promote their own well-being. And so that's where the science part of it comes from. And then in the middle of the 20th century, we become much more serious about the science in that we actually begin to use first methods that are really tantamount to counting, quantifying things through count data, and then figuring out how we can study individuals through the development of survey research. That starts in the 1930s, but it really explodes in the 50s and 60s. All right, we'll come back to the 20th century, but let me just stick in the 19th century for a little bit longer. So if the field starts to emerge in the late 19th century, and just to throw in a couple of key landmarks that come up when people try to date it, you know, it's 1857 when Francis Lieber is appointed the first professor of history and political science mm -hmm. at Columbia University. Some people point to that. In 1877, Johns Hopkins creates the first political science association. And then three years later, Columbia creates the first graduate school of political science. Mm -hmm. I should say Tulane has a part of this history, too. In 1903, the American Political Science Association, which becomes a key association, is created right here at Tulane, yeah. something I did not know when I got here and when we started the preparation for this conversation right here in our Tilton Hall. But it's when APSA, the main organization, is founded. So in those years from 1857 to 1903, of course, ideas about race are, let's say, in a very different place than we have them today as we have this conversation. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the connection between political science as a discipline 
and structural racism or racism itself. I mean, these are decades in which, certainly in some of the locations that I mentioned, including Tulane, the conversation or understanding of race is quite different from our contemporary understanding. Is that kind of written into the discipline in some sort of way? Yes, absolutely. Many of the persons who were the founding figures were either deeply committed to explicit racism, people like Woodrow Wilson, right? As a professor of political science before he becomes president of Princeton and then president of the United States. Yeah. And so Wilson is most famous for the League of Nations and ending World War I, but in the domestic side and you know, so scholar of the presidency, what he's really notorious for is resegregating the federal government in Washington, D.C. I mean, the radical Republicans have done a pretty good job of integrating patronage. Wilson stops that, even though he rises to power both as governor of New Jersey and as president by courting black voters in swing districts in the north. And then he completely abandons that coalition. And he resegregates the government, resegregates Washington, D.C. He hosts the screening of Birth of a Nation at the White House and says that it's as if lightning had written history on a screen, right? And so there are those figures that are deeply committed to racism, you know. But then there are a set of figures that you wouldn't describe them as committed to overt racism, but they're just committed to a view that black people and indigenous people don't really matter, right? And so these are people like Ostrogorsky and E.E. E. Schatzneider, who were writing in the 19th, early 20th century up to the 1940s about American government as if it were this idyllic place where democracy's thriving. And just excluding the reality of racial dictatorship that characterizes the life of most people of color in our country, they just exclude it from the analysis, right? And so they develop these fundamental accounts that the institutions of America are the most just and equal, and and they promote democracy, except if you think about blacks in the South. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the discipline really... Its main enterprise is less an overt commitment to white supremacy, has a a move to erase the truly rotten elements of American democracy with regard to racial dictatorship. And so explaining away the South as an economically backward region, and that's why the blacks are excluded there, or just kind of you know, fudging on how bad things actually were, right? This is what we get in most accounts of American democracy from, say, 1915 to 1950. I think this is really the modal account. And you get people who are much, much more progressive, like Bob Dahl at Yale in the 1950s, and they too are writing these accounts. It's like, well everything's going to be okay. So the dominant theory coming out of Yale in the 1950s is pluralism. Every group is going to get a turn to govern. And Dahl even says, even the Italians <laughs> will one day get their chance to run City Hall in New Haven, right? Well, I mean, all of those groups are white, <laughs> right? It's not going to be any groups of color are going to get their chance to govern. 
So we don't get correctives to that until very recently. And in fact, I'm part of the generation that is making these corrections. So how does race structure the discipline within which then you're trying to work? You know, is there excavation that needs to be done or how does one approach that? Yeah, I mean, it's an all-white discipline with the exception of Ralph Bunch is the first black person to get a PhD in political science from Harvard, which is kind of a lead department by the time we get to the 1930s and 40s. And, you know, there are just not a lot of people of color brought into the discipline to kind of push back against the white supremacist analysis. And then you have Bunch, who is deeply committed to racial egalitarianism, to globalism. He's probably one of the 10 or 15 most important humans we've ever produced in the country. But even he is implicated in this narrative, right? So he is the lead research assistant on Gunnar Myrdal's American Dilemma, right? I mean, he does most of the heavy lifting and the research on Blacks and institutions in the South. And the American Dilemma, the exclamation point at the end is that the institutions are fine. The people are the problem. <laughs> and so if we can just reduce racism enough to allow the institutions to function properly, it's going to solve the race problem. Could you just say for those who may not know Gunnar Myrtle's work, how important that is in the field itself? Oh, my gosh. It's the first scientific study of race relations in the history of the United States that's not propped up by some Nazi or eugenicist. I think it's funded by Ford Foundation. It's a real scientific study of American race relations. And Myrdal is the lead author. He's an economist from Sweden. Uh, he would win the Nobel. And Bunch is the principal research assistant. And where is Bunch in his career at that point? Bunch is just finishing his degree at Harvard, and also he's founding the political science department at Howard at this time, and then also trying to fix this League of Nations thing that's kind of <laughs> turned it into something real. So, you know, he's a busy dude. Right? <laughs> he's a busy so, guy, yeah. You know, so they produce this work that does treat blacks as kinds of real contributors to American democracy and an important component of the American story, but they're not critical of the American institutions. And the problem for later scholars is that, as we're seeing today, institutions are put in place to preserve slavery <laughs> and racial inequality. The institutions are fundamentally flawed and fundamentally set up to prop up white supremacy. Bunch and Myrdal were not in a position to see that or say that. So the kind of American dream myth that fuels a lot of the development of America's ascendancy in the global order after World War II, you know, there's a black guy that's like driving the car to make that myth. And he didn't see the unintended consequences of that. I mean, he's a progressive force as is Myrtle, but they're just a little too close to the crimes to kind of really call them for what they were. Because also the alternative is like, okay, if American institutions fall, we're entering this Cold War with Russia, and that's just not going to be a good outcome for Black folks either. Now, you know, moving 
post-Cold War, some of the other disciplines that we've been exploring in this podcast have been more or less explicit about rediscovering or re-examining the past of their discipline itself. What does that look like in political science? Is looking at the history of it, the discipline itself a key part of the conversation of political science? Not as much as it should be, because all of these elite departments are still not very diverse. And so I'm in a field called race, ethnicity, and politics, which really grows up in the 1960s. I think it's 1968, the National Conference of Black Political Scientists is formed. You know, there were these black political scientists, mostly at HBCUs, but few like Lucius Barker, who was the first black political scientist to really make it big, <laughs> right, and get tenure at an elite university. First, he was at Illinois and then Stanford, and he was black president of the American Political Science Association, right? I mean, it's just, just amazing. Bunch was the first, and then I think Lucius was the second. So, like, you've got guys like him or my colleague Diane Penderhughes at Notre Dame, who was like a mentor of mine, and Haynes Walton who was one of the few people to move from an HBCU, Savannah State, to University of Michigan, which is one of the truly elite programs. And so that generation, they saw the pushback as both through their writings, organizing to say, like, there's a real race problem in this discipline, and then writing about race, because the elite journals are controlled by people who are hostile to changing the conversation. And they exclude that entire generation of brilliant scholars from publication in the elite journals. And so National Conference of Black Political Science is is formed, has a kind of alternate safe space for all of these scholars to bring up race. And a lot of their writings are the foundation of what my generation would turn into a kind of institutionalized critique of the discipline. So you've got like all these people writing about race in the 70s and a discipline saying, we don't really want that in like, say, the American Political Science Review. And they're like, so we're going to publish it as books. So it's all available. But the mainstream isn't taking the critiques seriously until they create something to generate a pipeline of younger scholars of color. Right. And they created something aptly called the Ralph Bunch Institute. <laughs> right. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. 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 It's, a, it's this thing where that you take uh, students from underrepresented backgrounds and you send them to an elite institution for a summer. It used to move around. But then Paula McLean at Duke took it over for like 20 years. And basically they made a whole bumper crop of young scholars of color that have all of the teched up methodological skills that now you can't just dismiss their papers on the kind of technical issues. And so you've got to take some of their work more seriously. And then they're making critiques, right? Then you have a whole generation of young progressive white scholars, like my friend Paul Freimer, for example, who's at Princeton now. He's trained by Roger Smith and Kathy Cohen at Yale. He wrote this major book about how the political parties have been super racist throughout their history, right? And people take that critique seriously. And so we're in a space now where the politics of hyperpartisanship around race uh, and immigration has made it such that some of these elite departments understand that They've got to have a critique of racism 
as part of their programs now. We all watch January 6th. So the kind of importance of understanding that thread, you know, like understanding that the guy that drove to the Capitol to sack the Capitol, it's probably the kid or the grandkid of somebody like, I don't know, Jerry Jones, who just happened to stand in front of that school in Arkansas in 1957, right? Mm-hmm. And opposed school integration, right? And so now we're, we're making these connections in ways that people recognize it as important, but there are still people who want to push back against it, right? And say, even with the importance of this critique, it's not as important as, you know, something like, oh, it's the economy, stupid. Like mm-hmm. all of these angry white male voters voting against their economic interest, they're feeling really squeezed by the economy. And it's like, okay, like that's fair. But on average, they're making like $35,000 more than black and Latino voters who are not voting against their economic interests. So like, how do you explain that? Right? So that's kind of like the last horizon. It's like people that want to say, well, there are all these economic reasons for understanding the kind of pulse of American politics. It's not just kind of identity politics or race. But those arguments are really flimsy in my view, and they begin to fall apart if you don't just center white men as the modal subject of your studies. We've talked to several scholars from different disciplines about the title of the series itself, Anti-Racism and the Disciplines. Mm -hmm. And we've got some really interesting responses to that term itself. So let me ask you, what does anti-racism mean in political science? And what does anti-racist work look like, if that's a different way to approach the question? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I don't know. I know I view my own anti-racist ethics as comprising of two primary activities. One is understanding that regardless of where we exist now, we live in a system where people have inherited certain privileges and they've inherited certain disadvantages. And so my role as a scholar is to first not make any of that worse, (laughs) right? And then the second role is to explicate how there is a connection between those inheritances and where we are today. And then I I work a lot as a consultant uh, for nonprofits and corporations, and I'm actually writing a book on the anti-racist corporation. And and I've got this kind of 3P model, I call it, for designing anti-racist actions, right? And so the first P is look at your past, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. The second P is look at the present, right? So you got to design for the past. If you are trying to understand why it takes your Latino workers or your black workers twice as long to get to work in a downtown district as it takes your white workers, and you look at the structure of segregation in terms of neighborhoods, that's looking at the past. Looking at the present is like, well, how does that affect their end user experiences? And what can you do in this moment to make that better. So think like big tech giving people free shuttle buses to their core offices, right? And then the third P is you got to try to design for perpetuity. Like what is going to be something that's going to be sustainable? And so when I look at the enterprise of making American political science anti-racist, I mean, I don't think we have gotten 
any traction on the first on the past. And when you say the past, you mean the discipline or you mean American history? The discipline and American history. There's a whole bunch of people perpetuating these data sets and teaching about administrations without still looking at the past and why that's meaningful. I think we're a little bit better at the present because you've got a bunch of teched up people who say, well, when we run these survey attitudes, we've got these kinds of racial gaps and you, you understand why these things matter today. Look at Black Lives Matter or look at the Stop AAPI Hate Movement. You understand why it's important to interrogate those questions. So we're a little bit better at the present. We've got no sense of design for the future. Right. I've got a super racist colleague in my department, right? I won't name that person, right? But like, this person's like, oh my God, like, are we admitting too many people of color? Jeez, like, uh, what are we doing here, <laughs> right? It's like any gauge on the future would say the average high school student or the average student under the age of 18 in American public schools is the child of a Latino, African, or Asian immigrant. So we're not going to source that talent right. and focus on the things that interest them for the future of the discipline. Like, what's the future of the discipline? You know what I mean? Yeah. Actually, I wanted to talk about your writing and your scholarship on Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And first, I want to start with the piece you published in 2019, which is called What Kind of Movement is Black Lives Matter? The View from Twitter which shows and looks at how six social movement organizations that were affiliated with Black Lives Matter used Twitter to try to figure out what kind of social movement it is. It's interesting, you know, we in one of our other episodes we interviewed uh Sarah Jackson for our communication episode and we talked a little bit about her article on how African Americans use Twitter for racial justice activism. So, I'm really interested in putting those two pieces together. Um Yeah. You know, what makes a political science approach to Twitter and Black Lives Matter distinct from a communication studies approach? Nothing. I mean, I think the difference between Sarah's work and my work is the extent of the counts. That's all. So as a, as a more quantitatively oriented researcher, just working with larger pockets of count data and then trying to explicate that through other means of testing – experimental regression analyses. She's doing much more qualitative work, but like I actually, I, I'm inspired by her work. And then I'm inspired by a guy who's way more quantitatively sophisticated than I am, a guy named Dean Freelon, who is also a communications uh, expert. Yeah, so, yeah. so, I mean, I, I don't think there's any real difference in the kind of hypothesis testing outcome is the model that all three of us use. I will say that you probably get a richer sense of what people at the individual level are doing by looking at Sarah's work than you would get from mine. The power of what I'm doing, though, is by aggregating so much data, we can say more definitively, just for snapshots, that the movement as a whole looks like this versus that. Then what Dean Freelon is doing is he's saying, okay, Tillery, that's fine, but who are these people talking to? He's creating these, these analyses of nodes of communication. Mm -hmm. And so I think you really need all three to really tell a full story. So I, I've been impressed by what's happening in all of these different fields. And I think that that's the interesting thing about political science is that we can bridge to so many different fields. We're not psychology or economics where these kinds of heterodox approaches, you have to do this to make it, 
you know, we are open to bridging to sociology, psychology, econ in ways that I think the other disciplines aren't. And so that's one reason I picked political science in the first place. You know, you've been studying Black Lives Matter since it first emerged in 2013. What, if any, ramifications have there been of the 2020 protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder on Black Lives Matter as a whole? You know, I've got some pretty unpopular views about Black Lives Matter based on data. (laughs) And, And so I think that the movement was just really important. And it really opened up a lot of new conversations in America. The local activists were amazing. Perhaps the largest protest movement in American history. 97% of the protests had no property damage, no violence whatsoever. And that's just really amazing. Love the messaging of being also allied with other marginalized groups, pro-feminist, pro-LGBTQ+. But I I must say that like all social movements, as a scholar of social movements, there are movement cycles. And the Black Lives Matter movement has been in a steep decline since the 2020 protests. And you would expect that. I think part of the reason for that decline is the massive backlash at the level of local and state governments that have been put into action in a lot of these states. And I don't think the activists were ready for that. I think the decentralization, which a lot of allied scholars think it was some big innovation, you know, oh my God, the Black Lives Matter movement, there's not one hierarchical leadership structure. It's hyper-democratic. It's decentralized. So was the long civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, women are at the center of this Black Lives Matter movement in a way that they weren't what are you talking about? Fannie Lou Hamer, Miss Rosa, Dorothy Height. <laughs> if you watch Miss Rosa's documentary, it's clear that the women of Dallas County picked Dr. King <laughs> to be their face, but they were still very much in charge, right? Mm. Uh, and then later in her life, she put her thumb on the scale for John Conyers. And I think that the narrative history of the critiques of the very problematic dimensions of the long civil rights movement, trying to run a real movement based on those critiques, I think is proven pretty costly for the Black Lives Matter movement. A reason that the women of Dallas County and the older men picked Dr. King to be the face of the movement is because you need a face Mm. to prevent co-optation, to say what you're for or against. And I think what we saw with the fall of Patrice Cullors, with the National Movement for Black Lives organization, I mean, you can't take in 60 to $90 million in charity money and then expect people not to ask you, what are you doing with the money? So a lot of data that I'm getting out of the communities that I run studies in, people are kind of like, yeah, we support Black Lives Matter. We don't know whom to call when we need them. We don't know who's in charge. We don't know all these other things. And so that weakness of the movement is going to need to be exercised if they're going to reassemble and have the same kind of impact they had in 2020. And then another problem is there hasn't been a real political uptake. You need to have a bridge to those politicians to get them to take up your issues. 
And that's what the classic civil rights activists did in the 50s and 60s. They always had a bridge to politics and policy. So I don't know what the future of the movement is, but it's been a very powerful force. And I hope it can reconstitute itself and continue to have a positive impact. Now, with that, Alvin, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, to teach us, to inspire us. And thank you for this conversation. No, thank you. If you liked this podcast, help us spread the word. Tell your friends, teachers, or students, or share it on social media. And let us know how you are contributing to anti-racist scholarship and teaching at our website, liberalarts.tulane.edu slash anti-racism and the disciplines podcast. I'm your host, Brian Edwards. This podcast was produced by Gabriela Garcia Mays. Original music is by Corey Diane. Our production assistant was Maggie Green.